The following program is made possible by the friends and partners of Creation Today. Hey guys, welcome to the Creation Today show. I'm your host, Eric Hovind, and it is great to be with you guys today. Hey, to our Creation Today partners out there, thanks for joining me. Uh, Amber and Andrew and Sherry and Gary and Joe, I see all you guys on here. Yom, I haven't seen you on here before, so uh, so welcome. I apologize if I just haven't gotten to meet you yet. Uh, my name is Eric, and I run a ministry called Creation Today, and it's been a busy week. I just got back last night about 11 o'clock from the West Coast, Portland, Oregon area, and had a really good time out there, but wow, worked like a dog. So uh, I'm a little, I'll be honest, a little underprepared from what I normally like to be for this conversation, but it's a conversation that I've gotten to have a lot of times about the age of the earth. Exactly how old is the earth? Welcome to the Creation Today Show, where we bring together interviews with experts and solid Bible teaching. Your host, Eric Hovind, affirms the ultimate authority of God's Word, the truth of creation, and why it matters to you. Now, as I get into this conversation, I, I want you to realize that I recognize that if the earth is young, which I believe the Bible confirms that, and we kind of talk about that on a regular basis, it destroys any of the evolutionary paradigm, any of the ideas that um, that there is no God. As soon as you show the evidence, and as soon as you see the earth is young and the universe is young, and we'll be talking about both, you really are kind of forced into a biblical model. You're forced into a, a biblical worldview, as you've seen that. I was out at the Design Science Association uh, this last weekend in Portland, Oregon, and uh, thank you guys, by the way, for letting me come out there and talk to you. Uh, and Milt Marcy had written a book that we have in our bookstore, but I had never read it. Well, at the end of the conversation uh, there at the Design Science Association, I went ahead and talked to Milt. Or no, we had question and answer, and Milt talked to me at the Q&A. said, did you know this and this and this about kind of the history of the age of the earth? And I said, wow. That's deeper than I've gone before. He said, I wrote a book about it. I said, what's it called? He said, the emperor who had no clothes. And he specifically goes into exposing the hidden roots of the evolutionary agenda. And I got to tell you, as he described some things, I grabbed the book. Actually, I take that back. He gave it to me. I offered to buy it. And he gave it to me and signed it. And he's got a new book coming out next month. And he went into some of the background. And I started reading a couple of days ago a little bit of the background about the whole age of the earth history. Now we know that there were times back in the Greeks uh, where they had these ideas of, of evolution and had these concepts of long ages, but they weren't really codified. They weren't scientific. Let's put it that way. We hadn't had the scientific revolution, which by the way, was started by creationists, people that wanted to see God's design in science. So there were some some ideas, some theories out there, but nothing really scientific about the earth being uh, old. And as I went through this, this book, just the, the chapter on James Hutton, I, I was actually shocked. And I called, I, I did some research. I got Milt's number and asked him to call me. And we, we talked on the phone for about half an hour. And I said, Milt, is what you're saying here really true? He said, Eric, I've gone through and I've examined the background so old earth thinking, just so you know, came up, came about as a uh, an idea uh, 
uh, and it was really codified. We give modern, the modern uh, person that we give credit to coming up with this is a guy named James Hutton. He uh, wrote a book in 1795 called The Theory of the Earth. And in his book, Theory of the Earth, he talks about how old the earth is and he tries to actually give information on um, from a geologic perspective on how the earth could be millions of years old. His theory, as he presented it to the scientific societies, it w didn't take hold very quickly at all. But after a few years, another guy helped and really promoted this idea and it kind of caught on in the early 1800s. What I was fascinated with was the why did he come up with the millions of years idea? Now, you might find this fascinating to know, and I encourage you to grab a copy of the book, The Emperor Had No, no Clothes by Milk. I'll, do a, I'll do, hopefully do a show with him uh, in the future. There was no scientific information that caused him to say, hey, look at this. Maybe the earth is old. There was no scientific revolution that, that caused people to say, oh, my goodness, guys, maybe we got it wrong. There wasn't radioactive carbon dating. The, the, the geologic column was in it was in its infant stages and uh, as far as the concept and, and the major geologists of the world at that time, I mean, the world renowned geologists recognized and realized that the layers to the earth were laid down by a flood, by Noah's flood. Well, you get into the background of James Hutton, the guy who now we give credit for coming up with kind of the old earth and, and popularizing the old earth ideas. And you discover, wow, he at 21 years old, kind of especially for back in that time, had a boo-boo. He had a child out of wedlock. Well, back in that time, you kind of separated the father from the mother and the child for at least a year. He goes over to, I think it's Paris, and studies in Paris. And the mother, we never, we don't, I don't know what happened to her. We don't hear what happened to her, the mother and the child. And then throughout the writings of his lifetime, he writes back and forth with certain individuals, and he's a, he's a pretty crass individual talking a lot about his escapades, his, uh, his, his sexual dealings with, with, uh, with women, married women, uh, unmarried women. And we see from an, and, and I, this, is, this is fascinating to me, okay? We see, uh, not the details of his escapades, but the fact that the reason old earth worldviews kind of came about was because at this time, science was really controlled by an understanding of scripture. In other words, we looked at science through the lens of the Bible. We knew that a catastrophe, we knew God created the heavens and the earth, then a catastrophe took place. And then as you looked at, at the world, at science, you looked at it through the lens of a flood, of a catastrophe. And when you do that, the science lines up with the Word of God really, really well. And we've done shows about that. We did, uh, was it a literal global flood? Uh, we've done Rocks Don't Bend, with, uh, which is a great show. You ought to go back and watch that show, Rocks Don't Bend. Um, but, but I found it fascinating. And, and for example, this is um, DeLuke. DeLuke uh, says he kind of saw through. He's a contemporary, uh, known as the best geologist of the day. And he ends up writing commentaries and that you would publish your stuff in the paper back then, kind of like putting stuff online now. He would put his stuff out in the paper and he basically, he trashes Hutton. He says, look, I see through why you're trying to create this old earth perspective, this old earth paradigm. 
Here's a, here's a quote to Luke goes on and says, we shall now begin to see why the author referring to Hutton in one of the former passages pretends that in this manner, the worldwide flood he's talking about, there is no question with regard to the memory of man or any human records which continue the memory of men from age to age. For the above proposition is not only contrary to the Mosaic history, not only is it contrary to the Bible, because Hilton is trying to make the claim that the flood didn't happen, because if the flood didn't happen, there's no judgment. People in the last days are going to be willingly ignorant is what the Bible says. Sorry, rambling here. So not only is it contrary to Mosaic history, it is also contrary to the records of all nations, which have continued the memory of an event wherein the preservation of vegetable and animal life from total destruction by water was operated by a miracle. Every nation on earth had this legend, had this story, had this concept. So it's just, and, and, and I encourage you, I want to do, I'll do a show with him on, on the book. But where did old earth ideas come from? Why, why do I have to now, why, why do ministries like Answers in Genesis, why do ministries like ICR, why do ministries like uh, Creation uh, Ministry International, why do these organizations, why do they have to stand so firm and say, guys, look, this is an authority issue. We've got to stick to the word of God. The Bible teaches a young earth. And it does. I had somebody this Sunday come up to me and say, you know, I just, I, I think I'm old earth, but I'm not sure exactly because the genealogies could have been long periods of time. Those genealogies in the Bible, we don't know if it was the, a father son relationship or a, a father grandson. Sometimes in the genealogies, they skip generations. And I said, you know what? You're right. Sometimes they skip generations, but here's what makes it rock solid from the Bible. And you won't read 6,000 in the Bible, but you will read a lot of dates in the Bible. Genesis chapter five, Genesis chapter 10. Here's what makes it rock solid. When it tells you how old Adam was when his son, Seth, even if it was, I think it was his son, but even if it was grandson or his great grandson or his great, great grandson, it doesn't matter. It gives you an age. It gives you a number that we get to deal with. So clearly from the Bible, and, and sorry, I'm not doing that in this session, but from the Bible, we clearly see, I mean, incredibly clearly see that it is indeed a young earth. Um, the conversation I had last week with my uh, friend, Paul, uh, he runs a YouTube channel called Apologia, uh, and he said, hey, I agree. He says, I, I used to believe the things of the Bible. I used to believe a young earth, and now he says I, he doesn't. But he says, you cannot get an old earth perspective from the Bible. You don't start with the Bible and get any kind of old earth worldview. So, so I, I talk about this and, and I want to preface this conversation with where did the old earth idea even come from? Because it wasn't a scientific revolution. It was a proposition that got rid of the Bible. And to my friends out there that believe in an old earth and believe, hey, I'm a Christian, I believe the word of God, and would say it's the infallible, inspired word of God. We have God's word. I go, you really ought to do some research on, and maybe I should do a show on this, the history of old earth thinking. Where did this idea actually come from? And what you'll see is people were trying to get rid of the laws trying to get rid of Moses, trying to get rid of God says this, thou shalt and thou shalt not. It was Julian Huxley, Thomas Huxley's grandson, 
Thomas Huxley, if you don't know, is the one who spread evolution for Darwin. He was called Charles Darwin's bulldog and spread evolution throughout Germany and then throughout Europe. Well, his grandson, Julian Huxley, said, I suppose the reason we jumped or we leapt at the origin of species, that was Darwin's book, was because the idea of God interfered with our sexual mores, with our morals. We wanted to do what we wanted to do. And listen, if you would consider yourself an atheist or an agnostic or you don't believe the Bible, I do want to challenge you. I'm not trying to say, here's what you're thinking. I am trying to say, I believe this is the root of what's going on. You want your thoughts and your way over God's thoughts and God's way. And I'm not trying to accuse you of something. I'd be happy to have that conversation. I would try to say it as lovingly as I can, right right as we sit across the table from each other and say, let's examine why you believe this. Let's get down to the root cause. So anyway, that's where I'm coming from. And I want to talk about young earth versus old earth and really go into the science of young earth uh, for a few minutes here today, because I think it'll be actually helpful for us. I really think it'll be something that, that we that we really can uh, understand and and we can understand from a scientific perspective, okay? All right, so when it comes to the universe, uh, when it comes to matter, when it comes to uh, everything we have in the world today, space, time, and I wanna get into this a little bit, we only have a couple choices. Either, and, and there's no other choices out there. If you know of one, put it in the comments. Either the universe is eternal, and I get it. you got to define the word universe. We're going to do that here in just a second. Either the universe or, or something that we can call the universe is eternal, that be that space, time, matter, energy, whatever that is. Either it's eternal, it's always existed, or the universe created itself, or someone created the universe. Those are your only choices. There's no other options out there for us to, to hold on to. I, well, take that back. There, there are people that would say uh, we're just uh, and imagine nothing really exists. We're not really here, okay? Um, I, that one, I think, is pretty easily disproven, too, because, you know, who's, who's the one saying that we could just be an imagination, that, that we don't even exist, uh, or that we're in a computer simulation? Okay, well, that computer simulation has to be run in a computer in a real universe. So however you go about you really come down to these three options. Either the universe is eternal, the universe created itself, or someone created the universe. <sighs> so to start off, I wanna give kind of a philosophical argument using dominoes. My friend Brian Malusian wrote a blog on this and I thought, dude, that is such a great concept. So we turned it into a little bitty post and I think that uh, I think this will be helpful for you. And I want to I want to kind of cover it in two different ways. I'm going to do it both ways, uh, using the universe and dominoes to show that it cannot be eternal. The universe cannot be eternal. Okay. First of all, something must have caused the universe when it began to exist, because nothing comes from nothing. Now, if you watched my conversation with Paul last week, and Paul, you're on, are you on here? Paul, I believe, is on, is one of our Creation Today members. He's my atheist friend, and yeah, he's on here. Okay, so if you listen to my conversation with Paul last week, Paul said, hey, Eric, I just want to stop you when I said, when I said, hey, I have a hard time believing in some of these very inconsistent things, like something came from nothing, and matter came from non-matter, and order came from chaos. He said, can I just stop you? 
Can I just tell you that we don't believe that something came from nothing. And he put it up on his channel and even did a little video. I saw that, Paul. Very, very good. I don't like your ending. I think your ending misconstrues what was being said. I was talking about the whole conversation. But anyway, um, the... Uh, he put it up on his channel and I, and I appreciate, and this is not Paul, this isn't like, I don't want to get into a YouTube back and forth. I'd like to have a conversation about this. Um, and he said, we don't say something comes from nothing and you need to correct that in your thinking. And, and I kept going back and I was like, well, I want to look into this because I've heard multiple times people say something came from nothing. I mean, you know, Alan Guth in his theory of inflation says everything was from a singularity and it's not hard to believe that if we believe everything came from the singularity, it's not hard to go further back and say the singularity came from nothing. So what does that actually mean? And I appreciate the commenters on your YouTube. I, I got to read a couple of them. And by the way, thank you to you guys who uh, were, were grateful for the dialogue Paul and I had. I really appreciated that conversation. Matter of fact, I texted somebody yesterday and uh, they confided in me, said, hey, just so you know, and I was working on a project with them, said, just so you know, I don't particularly share your faith. I don't share your belief. And I couldn't help but respond. I said, uh, and he, he's a friend. I said, uh, I said, man, you, you've put me in a dilemma because he's a guy who loves good humor. I, do I assume your humor, because he's a funny guy, uh, and can I apply it to our differences right now? And say something like this, bro, you really suck, man. I has not seen or ear heard of the awesome tech that will be in heaven. You're going to miss it. You think the 360 cameras are cool. He talked me into getting a, a 360 camera for this last shoot I was doing. I said, or do I treat you like a delicate soul with fragile emotions? I'm truly at a crossroads help. And he's like, for the former, definitely, you know, appreciate. Because I really do enjoy having conversations. So so I appreciate that, Paul. Really appreciate the, the conversation that we had. But I'm still struggling with what you mean when you say nothing versus what other people mean when they say nothing. So went through the comments and I did a quick Google search. Uh, there's a I don't know if you would respect this guy, uh, Paul or atheist out there. I'm not sure. Uh, Ethan. Uh, Ethan Siegel is a science writer. Uh, I didn't find one picture. I found a lot of pictures. He apparently has a really creative personality. So uh, he's uh, he's got some different looks going on. Ethan Siegel. And um and as I read his column, he wrote, he wrote, you know, did the universe come from nothing? He's trying to answer this question. I want to read some, some of what he wrote because I think it ties in perfectly with, with what we mean when we say nothing. Did the universe come from nothing? So I hope this will be helpful as I go through this. He said, if you can consider a matter, antimatter, symmetric universe as a universe with nothing, then it's almost guaranteed that the universe generated something from nothing even though we aren't quite certain exactly how that happened. Now, of course, somebody who's not describing nothing that way would say, wait a minute, that's not nothing. He gets into that. Hang on just a second. To a large fraction of people, the universe, uh, excuse me, a universe where space and time still exist, along with the laws of physics, the fundamental constants, and some non-zero field energy inherent to the fabric of space itself, is very much divorced from the idea of nothingness. And this is where the problem comes in. I'm glad he admits this, and I'm glad he talks about this. And Paul, uh, you can comment if I'm hitting the nail on the head here. We can imagine, after all, a location outside of space, a moment beyond the confines of time, and a set of conditions that have no physical reality to constrain them. And those imaginings, 
if we define these physical realities as things we need to eliminate to obtain true nothingness, are certainly valid. Kevin says, there is a difference between philosophical nothingness and a more physical definition of nothingness. There's four scientific definitions of nothing, and they're all valid depending on your context. Definition number one, he says, it's a time when your thing of interest didn't exist. So if there was a time before my remote existed, the remote was into nothingness. Now, I would still argue that the particles that make this up did exist at some point, but anyway, we'll get into that. Uh, number two would be empty physical space. So a space void of anything has nothing in it. Empty space-time in the lowest energy state possible, definition number three. And definition number four, whatever you're left with when you take away the entire universe and the laws governing it. So he goes on. I'll let him, I'll let him explain it. He says, we can definitely say we obtained a universe from nothing if we use the first two definitions. We cannot if we use the third and quite unfortunately, we don't know enough to say what happens if we use the fourth. Without a physical theory to describe what happens outside the universe and beyond the realm of physical laws, the concept of true nothingness is physically ill-defined. Well, physically, it means physically nothing, no time, no space. So when I use the word nothing, I'm referring to definition number four, no space, no time, no matter, and no energy. So I'm wondering if that's where the confusion is coming from when I say uh, some people believe you have to get the universe from nothing. Well, I mean, how did, ma how did space, time, matter, and energy come into existence? Where did that start from? You only have two choices. Either you say space, time, matter, and energy are eternal, or you say space, time, matter, and energy had a beginning. And that's where my dominoes comes in here in just a second, okay? By the way, when you look up the definition of the word universe, they say the universe is everything. It includes all space, all matter, energy that space contains, and it even includes time itself. And of course, this includes you. So when I'm using the idea that the universe came into existence from nothing, I'm talking about space, time, matter, and energy, and I'm wondering if that's where the confusion lies. Now, you only have these three choices still. Either the universe is eternal, the universe created itself, or someone created the universe. Those are the, the three things. Uh, Paul, I'll get to your comment. Um, let me keep going, and then we'll, after, the, after we get to the behind the scenes, we'll, we'll talk here. Um, so back to my universe and dominoes analogy uh, that Brian Malusian so uh, um, interestingly laid out. Something, space, time, matter, and energy is what I'm talking about, and people would, you know, the universe, something um, must have caused the universe when it began to exist because nothing comes from nothing. And I'm talking about a time before space, time, matter, and energy, and all that, okay? What properties must that cause have? Like, in other words, what kind of thing can create what we see today? Well, since we're trying to explain the whole universe, then the cause cannot be time, space, matter, and energy. Because that's the very thing we're trying to explain. That's the very thing we're trying to talk about. So due to the complexity of the universe, the fundamental laws of fine tuning, the vast amounts of information in every field and system, especially inside of living things, the cause to, to, to get what we have today must be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, amazingly powerful, and highly intelligent. 
In other words, the universe must have been caused by something or someone because no one can create something out of nothing. And again, we're talking about nothing as in no space, time, matter, and energy, except something or someone supernatural. You would have to have those qualities. And this sounds very familiar because it sounds like the God of the Bible. Uh, and the way he describes himself, he's the only one who claims to be infinitely wise. And he's infinitely wise enough and powerful enough to start the entire universe. So how does this relate to dominoes? I, I, I hope you'll find this interesting, okay? Imagine an infinite row of dominoes and start the dominoes falling in infinity past. Is this back for you guys? Yeah, infinity past, okay? Now, pick a domino that you want to fall. Pick any one. And I ask the question, when is that domino going to fall? Well, that domino will fall just after the one before it falls, right? And then when will that one fall? Well, just after the one before it falls. So if you had to claim to have an infinite row of dominoes, how many dominoes have to fall before the one you're looking at falls? Well, it'd have to be an infinite number would have to fall. Well, how long would it take for an infinite number of dominoes to fall? Infinity seconds. So when will your domino fall? It's never going to fall. And it doesn't matter what domino you choose in the line of dominoes. Your domino could never fall if there's no beginning, no start, no first domino, and no person or no someone, no something to push over the first domino. In other words, they can't be infinite in the past. There must be a beginning domino. Well, the universe itself is a vast collection of cause-effect relationships, but all of those causes need a first cause. This is God in his act of creation. God is the first cause the uncaused cause. Your only other choice is to say that time is eternal, which I'll, I'll show you here in just a second is impossible. God is the someone who pushed over the first domino. People say, well, well, maybe time is eternal or matter is eternal or energy is eternal. Okay, now you just realize you're giving it God properties and that is now your God. So you, I... I don't think it'd be fair to call yourself an atheist or an agnostic if you have something that you believe, believe is eternal, because now that is indeed your God. Something eternal that has those qualities, that has those characteristics, that can create this kind of universe would be your God, no matter what you choose to say that that is. And by the way, this also applies to time. Time cannot be eternal. Let's go through the analogy. How can time not be eternal? Well, imagine an infinite row of dominoes uh, falling and pick the domino that you want to fall. When's it going to fall? It falls just before the one before it falls. When's that one going to fall? Just before or just after, I'm sorry, the one before it falls. So it keeps going in progression, cause and effect. But if there are an infinite number of dominoes, how many dominoes have to fall before the one you're looking at falls? An infinite number. How long is it going to take? Infinity seconds. So when will your domino fall? It's never ever, ever going to fall. And it doesn't matter which domino you choose. Your domino will never fall because there are infinite dominoes, okay? 
in order for your domino to fall, there must be a beginning domino. That principle applies to time. If time were eternal, okay, imagine a calendar with an infinite series of days, one after another for infinity. When are we going to get to today? Well, we'll get to today just after yesterday. Okay, well, when are we going to get to yesterday? Just after the day before that. Okay, well, when are we going to get to that one? Well, just after the day before that. But if there's an infinity number of days, how many days have to pass before we actually get to today? An infinite number. How long is it going to take infinity days? So how long until we get to today? It can never happen. And it doesn't matter when you live. Today could never come if there were infinite days. See, there must be a beginning day. The universe exists inside of time. <laughs> but all of time, but all of time needs a beginning of time. And that is what God created in the beginning. God created the first day. He answers this question for us, this dilemma for us that time cannot be eternal in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. God is the someone who pushed over that first domino. God created time. And the evening and the morning were the first day. So God is the eternal one. The universe is not eternal and cannot be eternal. So anyway, Paul, maybe you and I can talk about that in the second half and get a little more into that. Let me let me go through some of these evidences that I really wanted to get to of a young universe and a young earth. Now, there are a multitude of ways to show that the earth is young and that the universe is young and that it's not old. Now, I, I am not I'm not foolish enough to think that when you give these evidences, anybody, everybody who believes in old earth is going to go, oh, I was wrong. Because i got to be honest, I've talked to a lot of people who have heard these evidences and they will figure out a way to go, no, here's what you're misunderstanding or no, here's what you're seeing wrong. And, and I do find this dilemma fascinating. It's, it's as if we go to watch a movie and we're sitting in the movie theater and we, we just watch this show together. And we come out of the movie and we start talking about the movie and whether we liked it or not. And as we describe what happened, we describe totally different things. Like, no, 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 no. That, that didn't mean that. That didn't mean that, that he liked her. That, that didn't mean that, that he was an insider. That did, and the other, yes, it does. And we're watching the same thing and we're coming to different conclusions about what we watch. In many ways, a lot of these evidences are the exact same. We're looking at the same evidence. I mean, the evolutionists don't have a secret pile of evidence that are off limits to the creationists. Creationists don't have some secret stash of evidence that are, that are you know, off limits to the, to the secular worldview or to the uh, old earth worldview. We're looking at the same world. So why do we come to drastically different conclusions? And this has to be because of our starting point. What do we believe before we look at the evidence. I don't have time to hash that out. I want to get into these, but that's really what it comes down to. It comes down to our starting point. So of all the ways to show the age of the earth, and there literally are a couple hundred of uh, hundreds of ways to show the age of the earth, but about 90% of them 
actually showed that the earth and the universe seemed to be young, not old. Now, I, I think I know why. A lot of people cling to the old earth ones and say, well, because this shows that it's old, it must be old. And I say, no, the young ones, the ones that show that it's young become the limiting factor on how old the earth actually is. Let's run through a couple of these. There's salt in the oceans. Paul, I saw your video uh, two days ago. I watched your video trying to go against the seven something um, uh, eight, uh, evidences of a young earth. And I, I got to be honest, I was really disappointed in the argument against the salt in the oceans, okay? Just for a little bit of history, this method, method was first proposed by Isaac Newton's colleague, Edmund Haley. This is uh, from Haley's comment. Uh, more recently, the geologists and physicists and pioneers of um, uh, radiation therapy, uh, John Jolly, estimated that the oceans were 80 to 90 million years old at the most based on the salinity in the oceans. So today the oceans are at about 3.5, maybe 3.6% salt. Okay. Show you that here in just a second. But we have what's called the hydrologic cycle. The, the water evaporates from the oceans, evaporates from land as well, but evaporates, comes and rains down on the land. And as the water rains down on land and carry, and that water flows back out to the ocean basins, it's taking with it, it's carrying with it uh, mineral load, uh, salts and, and, and <clears throat> things that dissolve in the water, and it carries those minerals out to the ocean. Well, the minerals are not able to evaporate like the water evaporates. The water, the H2O, is able to come out. Those minerals stay behind. It's what makes the Dead Sea uh, so valuable today because water runs in and no water runs out. It just simply evaporates. So we've got a massive amount of salt at the Dead Sea now. Well, if the salinity of the oceans today is at 3.5%, and, and that can only be accounted for in somewhere between 80 and 90 million years, well, how can we say that the Earth system and then the oceans, which formed over the millions of years after Earth's formation, is somewhere in the neighborhood of more than 4 billion years old? There is a drastic difference between 80 and 90 million and 4 billion years. In other words, if the oceans on the surface of the Earth were billions of years old, they should have way more than 3.5% salt in them. The salt in the oceans is incredible evidence that the oceans have not existed for long periods of time. Now, here's the argument that I forgot his name, but uh, that he said on, on Paul's YouTube channel. Wait, Paul, this is going to turn into just a back and forth, isn't it? When you just need to make this a conversation. But I just happened to watch this video. Um, he said, well, we also know that salt is being leached out of the oceans. And it's true. The problem is, the amount being taken out is way smaller, only about a quarter of what is being brought in. So we still have a lot more salt being deposited in the oceans than being used up or being taken out of the oceans. So you still have a problem with an increasing amount of salt into the oceans. So how long could the oceans have been there and be at 3.5% salt? All I'm saying is there's no way the oceans are 4 billion years old because of the hydrologic cycle, washing minerals, washing salts out into the oceans. They cannot be 4 billion years old. Even secular scientists would say less than 100 million years at best. We've got caves that have stalactites and stalagmites in them. These stalactites and these stalagmites um, are, are forming and they're continuing to, to be created. But the problem is 
the rate of formation is not consistent with an earth that is billions of years old. That's the problem. Limestone um, stalactites, they form very slowly, according to uh, um, even according to secular researchers. And they say it grows about uh, 10 centimeters uh, every thousand years. But we've watched limestone form much, much, much faster than that. So how do we know that these things really only form an inch every 10,000 years or about an inch every um, uh, 1,000 years? Uh, 10 centimeters every um, thousand years. H how do we know that? Uh, this is me standing outside the Thermopolis flowstone, uh, or the flowstone out in Thermopolis, Wyoming. This is 100 years old. Now, I get it. This is uh, uh, um, a little bit different than some of the caves that we find, but it is the same principle. Somebody found a spring bubbling up out of the ground. They stuck a pipe in the ground and made the water flow up through the pipe and then over the pipe. Well, this created a flowstone that was covering the pipe, and it was kind of a neat thing. Well, after 100 years, this is how big, actually, this is uh, 20 years ago when I was out there. This is how big that one piece of flowstone is in, in about 100 years. They would go to caves, and in these caves, they would um, take out the, the bat manure of the caves as a uh, fertilizer for crops. And they've discovered in a couple places, the flowstone, the stalactites, stalagmites grow incredibly fast, not really slow. Uh, on the left, you see a bat that had died. It fell down and it literally got encased. I mean, the skull, the feet, the wings, everything was encased inside of flowstone inside of this cave. It did not take, uh, you know, a thousand years for that one centimeter or one cubic centimeter, uh, 10 cubic centimeters, one cubic inch of stalactite to, to fall. By the way, if you wonder how to keep them straight, it's stalactite might have fallen down, stalactite sticks tight to the ceiling. You know, that's how I do it. Um, the Lincoln Memorial was built in 1922. Again, this is a little bit of a special condition because it's not in the ground in a cave, but it had 55 inch long stalactites forming. It was just built in 1922. Um, there was a coal mine that had been shut down, a lead mine, excuse me, was shut down in Australia. And after 55 years, they opened it up and it was a fully formed cave of stalactites and stalagmites in just 55 years. These don't take millions of years or, you know, tens and tens of thousands of years to form. They can actually form really quickly. Um, Earth has a magnetic field that is rapidly decaying. And we know this. Now, we've watched it uh, decay. Um, I believe it's half-life. Uh, that's what they're saying. The half-life is about 1611 years. We, we, the Earth's magnetic field experiences a, a half-life. It's half as strong uh, at that point. Well, this is an exponential decay rate. How far back can we go? Now, the, the secular worldview would say, well, we see magnetic reversals. And um, I think this is an, um, an interesting concept because what actually causes those? We've seen magnet magnetic reversals happen in cooling lava extremely quickly, like less than 15 years we've watched magnetic reversals take place. And at Earth's mid-Atlantic Ridge, where, where we see the continents spreading apart, there are magnetic reversals. And it's assumed that those are from, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of years of Earth's magnetic field going back and forth. But we're watching, uh, we're watching cooled magma have magnetic reversals within just a few years. So I would say the that what we see at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is not evidence of millions or hundreds of thousands of years. It's actually evidence of a very young crust 
It doesn't have to be very old. Matter of fact, the biblical flood, uh, the Bible puts the flood at about 4,400 years ago. That would fit perfectly with uh, the the uh, Mid-Atlantic Ridge and what we see going on there. Mercury has a magnetic field. This kind of flies in the face of a secular worldview or a old earth idea that Mercury is very old. Mercury still has a hot molten core, uh, or excuse me, a solid inner core, but then a hot, hot molten inner core, um, outer core. And, and this gives it a magnetic field. The problem is Mercury is a pretty small planet. And with the temperature of space and what's going on, Mercury is cooling off. Well, you can't claim that Mercury is somewhere in the neighborhood of four to four and a half billion years old, and it still be a hot planet. It would have cooled off a long time ago. And so the fact that Mercury still has a strong magnetic field and has a molten outer core would be great evidence that Mercury is not billions of years old. Uranus and Neptune have magnetic fields as well. Matter of fact, all the planets indicate that they are young, they are not old. So the outer planets, Uranus and Neptune, have magnetic fields, but they also should be long dead if they're as old as the evolutionary beliefs claim that they are. If you look up how old is Neptune, they'll say it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 4.6 billion years old would be the age. My problem is this is impossible when they still have a hot molten core. They should be cold by now. They, they should not have that hot molten core out there in space over four and a half billion years. Jupiter has moons that go around it, and the moons have magnetic fields. Um, a guy named Russell Humphreys actually did a lot of work on this, and he per, uh, correctly predicted the gravitational fields of several planets before we ever got out there and actually measured them, and he measured them based on a young Earth worldview. In other words, used the 6,000-year the idea for the age of the Earth to measure the strength of these magnetic fields. And when they got out there and actually measured them, his predictions were correct. If it had been predicted based on old earth calculations, his predictions would have been way off because they would have been much weaker, much um, would have been much less of a magnetic field than what was predicted based on a 6,000 year old earth. Saturn is actually losing its rings. They say it would take somewhere around 300 million years for Saturn's rings to completely dissipate, to completely go away. Well, well, this is a problem, and, and I know they have a rescuing advice. They say, well, oh, no, no, Saturn's rings just formed somewhere between 10 and 100 million years ago. Well, that, that's quite convenient, but there's no explanation for this. There's no explanation of what formed Saturn's rings 10 to 100 million years ago. You're still extrapolating out into the past something that you don't see. Oh, we know it only lasts this long. They're there, so they must have just formed less than that time ago. It's a rescuing device. It's not really dealing even with a uniformitarian process that they would claim to hold to. Saturn's moon looks really young. It still has geysers and hot water being spewed out at supersonic speeds, indicating a very young moon. Um, there's still volcanic activity on Jupiter's moons, uh, indicating that they are young, not old. We've got comets that come through our solar system. We mentioned Halley, who was talking about the salt, uh, the salinity in the oceans. Halley's Comet is a short period comet. When they study comets, they, they know that it, as it comes by the solar radiation from the sun, the tail of the comet is actually debris being blown off the comet. So as it goes around the sun, debris is being blown off. It's losing material. Well, you can't keep losing material until eventually all the material is gone. 
So when they study these comets out and they look at them and they observe the size of them, they go, you know what? It doesn't think, it doesn't look like these comets can last for more than 20,000 years. Like, like they can't keep coming around the sun and getting debris being blown off at the rate that they're doing it and, and only be 20 and, and be more than 20,000 years old. This is impossible, but we still have comets in our solar system. And they've got a rescuing device. I'll tell you about that. Another thing is long period comets. We have these comets that only come through uh, that aren't just every, you know, every 70 years. I think Halley's is every 72 years. It's greater than a 200 year period that these comets come through. Well, they're still doing that. And again, we can't make sense of these in an old Earth system where these have always happened. So what's the rescuing device? Oh, there is something out there that is sending comets down here to the Earth. And as it sends comets or to the to, to our solar system and come through our solar system, and as those comets come through, they lose material. But there's an originator. There's something out there. So a guy named Jan Oort invented what's called the Oort cloud. And he said, maybe there is a spherical shell of comets out there. And that's what's sending uh, these comets uh, in through our solar system. And, and this, I honestly, I, Paul, I want to talk to you about this one too. I, I struggle going, why do we really accept this excuse? And I'm calling it an excuse not, not to be diminishing, but to say, I think this is an excuse of an Oort cloud. If, if you see the graph here, check this out. The sun and the earth is one astronomical unit away. So, and they tell you these objects are not to scale. Not only are the objects not to scale, the timeline is not to scale. So you got the sun, there's earth, Mars. Then you got the main asteroid belt where the main asteroid belt would be. Then the, um, uh, the inner Oort cloud is out there, then the Oort cloud, where the Oort cloud is. Now, I need you to notice something. The, the sun and the earth distance is one astronomical unit, one AU. The sun to the earth is one. When you get out to Pluto, Pluto is 39 astronomical units away. So you can see what he's doing is he's taking these numbers, one, 10, 100,000, 10,000, 100,000. He's actually extrapolating extreme time in order to get it on the graph down to a very short amount of time. Or, or, or on a graph, very short. So where you see Pluto, that would actually be the distance from the sun and the earth that you see there. That would actually be 39 of those away. That's how far away Pluto is. So to get it to scale, Pluto would be 39 of those away. The Oort cloud is said to be 50,000 astronomical units away. So you'd have to have a really big chart in order to put it on here. You take the distance from the sun and the earth right there, and then you do that 50,000 times. That's how far away they claim this Oort cloud is. It doesn't fit with what we, with, we've never seen it. We can't test this. We've made a hypothesis. Maybe something is out there. It's not a scientific one. It's not something that's tested and demonstrated. It's not inside the realms of science, if you will. It, it's a rescuing device. It's a way to say, well, there's got to be some, we see them, there's got to be some explanation. And I think that's kind of the big deal. And I'm, I'm curious how we reconcile these things. We're, we're looking at the same information. We're coming to different conclusions. I look at Niagara Falls and even secular uh, uh, reports in Niagara Falls would say it's been eroding for 12,300 years. Well, why hasn't Niagara Falls eroded further than that? Why is it at 12,000 300 years. It seems to me if, if 
the earth as we know it today, or North America, especially that area up there uh, by Canada, A, and, uh, and the United States, has been there for more than 12,000 years in a stable setting, which they would say it has. Niagara Falls should have eroded way farther than that. Niagara Falls is evidence, I would say, of, of a young earth. It's um, eroding at about one foot per year, depending on water flows. Some people say up to 10 feet, depending on how hard that layer is that it's cutting through right there. Uh, but that, that's a whole other problem, erosion rates today. They've measured how long it would take to erode all the continents. Like to, to get North America to erode down to nothing where North America is now at sea level. They say that would take about 10 million years. And this is with water. This is with rain. This is with, you know, basic erosion. This isn't the massive events. This is under not taking those into account because those are kind of small. The catastrophic things that we see are small compared to the, the normal erosion that's taking place. Well, um, if America and North America should be gone in 10 million years, how would we have rock that is still above sea level in North America, supposedly more than 10 million years old? It should have been eroded down to nothing by now. How can we have fossils inside those rocks that are supposedly way more than 10 million years old, still above sea level? How can we find dinosaur bones? I mean, when I was in Montana, I got to go look at dinosaur bones right there in the dirt. These dinosaur bones have... have some of them are fossilized. Some of them are not fossilized. Some of them are partly fossilized. Some of them are partly not fossilized, like in the same bone. If erosion would have taken these things off the continents in 10 million years, how do we still have fossil dinosaur bones, supposedly 65 million years old, still above sea level? It, it, it just doesn't make sense. We find radioactive carbon-14. Carbon-14 is found inside of diamonds. Now, the, the carbon-14 that we see cannot last for more than 100,000 years. Like, that's maximum. You don't get carbon-14 to last more than 100,000 years. So, so why would we still see carbon-14 in diamonds? I mean, these are the hardest substance known to man. So you can't, like, oops, push carbon-14 into the diamonds and, oh, we, we, we threw some in, we soaked it in a bath of carbon-14 and that's why they're made out of carbon, some of it's uh, radioactive carbon. If we find any radioactive carbon in diamonds, that means they're less than 10, uh, 100,000 years old. And we find significant amount of carbon-14 in diamonds. They can't be more than 100,000 years old. And according to the uh, a secular, I keep calling it secular, according to an old earth interpretation, diamonds probably formed somewhere around 200 to 300 million years ago. So um, we, again, we've, we've got a big problem. We got, we got rock arches in North America, and these are actually around the world. If you look at the rock arches, though, they're eroding away. They're constantly crumbling down. Um, 43 rock arches have fallen since 1970. There's about 2,000 of these. Um, well, how come we still have these arches around? If this system, if this erosional event that took these out occurred hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago to create this erosion, we shouldn't see these arches, these fragile arches that we still have today. So arches are great evidence that the earth, North America here, is not millions of years old. There's also a lack of bioterpredation. Uh, this is the, the tilling of the ground. Insects 
uh, worms, they burrow down into the ground and they actually stir up the soil. So they actually make it where if you had level or layered soil, they actually are constantly tilling that soil up and making it where those layers are now kind of mixed together. Insects do this all the time. Well, you would expect to see lots of, of this mixing as insects lived throughout the world while these layers are being formed because you got this layer supposedly, you know, 300 million years old, this one 295 million years old, this one 290 million years old. Over millions of years, you'd accept to, expect to see uh, this biointerpretation. But we don't see that. What we see is nice, neat layers. It, it's as if these were laid down very quickly by water all around the world. The biblical flood makes sense of the science of the geology that we see today. We've got things like the great unconformity. I got to go to this spot right here with uh, Dr. John and actually a whole group of guys. It was pretty cool where you actually get to see where creation rock, the, the granites and the schists meet the judgment rock. All of a sudden now it's layered. This is where creation and the flood meet. The, the foundations of the earth meet the, the flood layers. This layer is called the great unconformity because right in between those, those two rock layers that you see us standing next to. So you see the, the layers that are not stratified, that's the granites, and then the ones that are stratified right above it. We're missing somewhere around uh, a half a billion to one billion years in geologic time that's been either eroded away or however you want to say it's gone. There's rock layers there that are completely missing. This makes sense with a global flood. It doesn't make sense and this layer, by the way, is found around the world. I was just in uh, uh, the Wisconsin Dells. I did a movie on that. You can watch that, Operation Wisconsin Dells. Um, it doesn't make sense in an old Earth worldview. It does make sense in a flood model, in a catastrophic model. So I built a website called searchcreation.org, and I love this website because if you go there and you just do a search, Age of the Earth, and you search for the Age of the Earth, you're going to come up with dozens and dozens of articles going through the science of the age of the earth showing the earth cannot be millions or billions of years old. It does indeed have to be young. So uh, is the earth young? Is there evidence for a young earth? There's an overwhelming amount of evidence for a young earth. There's no doubt about it. Um, I'm, I'm constantly frustrated, if you will, that we are now presenting evidence that the earth is old, but we're doing that from a from a worldview that started that concept without any scientific evidence. It, it was born out of a frustration with the Bible and an attempt to get rid of the Bible. We developed old earth ideas because if you take out Genesis, if you take out the Genesis is the foundational book of all the Bible. And if you study the Bible, you'll see that. And, and I think even atheists would agree that Genesis is the foundation. You get every major doctrine from Genesis. You get the doctrine of marriage. You get the idea of wearing clothes. You get the doctrine of death, sin and death and punishment uh, from, from Genesis. You, you get the idea of, of Christ returning to atone for man's sin in Genesis. So the gospel is based in Genesis. So if, if it's really all based in Genesis, if that's the foundation, it's no wonder that the attack came in the form of an old earth, and that came against Genesis. Now, sorry about the technical troubles. YouTube and Facebook, I'm going to kick you off unless Amanda already did. Uh, sorry, I'm going to kick you guys off now. To my Creation Today partners, I want you guys to uh, chime in 
on this conversation and let me know what you guys think. So if you'd like to talk, I think I'll be able to hear you. Uh, just simply raise your hand and um, and let's let's have a conversation. Uh, I mean, if you didn't already kick them off, Facebook, YouTube, thank you. I'll see you guys next week for a great show. Um, if you want to talk, raise your hand if you got a question, and I'll try to jump back through the comments here. And I'm sorry I missed a lot of these while I was monologuing. 